leading us so wonderfully in worship to fix our eyes on Jesus. Our whole faith hinges upon one thing, upon a singular moment that altered the course of history forever. A moment that if it's not true, our gathering here today is in vain. A moment that if it's not true, the tithes and offerings that we just took up are completely worthless. Our time and our energies, as we've been pouring our hearts and souls into ministry to gather here today, are completely meaningless. And my job is definitely without a point. And I imagine if I was to ask you if you believe this, most people in this room would say yes. But so often, our actions and my actions say something very differently. So the question for today is really two parts. Do we really believe that Jesus rose again? And if so, do we live that way? Now let's start off by admitting the claim that a man died and then rose again is absurd. And in fact, most scholars believe and agree that Jesus, the historical figure who lived around the time that the Bible says he did, that was crucified underneath Pontius Pilate. But we differ on one thing, whether or not Jesus rose again after being crucified. But I hear so many people my age and older saying things like, Jesus was a really wonderful moral teacher. And don't get me wrong, he was. He said amazing things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He told us to take care of those who are poor, to take care of the orphans and the widows. But he also said some crazy countercultural things. He told people to leave the dead to bury their own dead and come and follow him. He told people to, that he was the only way to have contact with God. He told people to leave their fathers and their mothers and their brothers and sisters to come and follow after him because he alone would be worth it. Do you know what we call people who say those type of things now? Cult leaders. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, worshiping his name. And not only us gathered in this room, but people all across the world praising the name of a man who said he was the only way to, to God and that he was worth leaving everything for. Not only did Jesus say those things, but he also even told his disciples before he was crucified that after he died, he would meet them again in Galilee. And that's where our story picks up today. So I challenge you as we read it together that you ask yourself the question, do I really believe? And if the answer is no, that's okay. Let your prayer be, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's stand together in honor of God's word as we read from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him.
See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Let me take a seat. Let's pray. Uh, God, we just thank you so much for your word that you are speaking life into us with it. Lord, be with me as I speak. I pray the words that will come out of my mouth will only be of you. Give us open hearts and ears to receive what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I imagine that most people in this room, this is probably not your first time stepping foot in a church. And I imagine that most of us in here, even if it is since growing up in the Bible Belt, you've probably heard the basic gospel message before. That you sinned, you fell short, and because you fell short, there was this gap between you, a sinner, and an all-perfect God that there was nothing that you could do that could ever bridge it. So God, being rich in kindness and love towards us, stepped in and sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross, being the ultimate sin sacrifice. And after he died, he rose again on the third day. And I think that somewhere, at some point, we got confused in this message. Somewhere along the way, we got confused to thinking if we simply say the words that we believe, that Jesus died and rose again for our sins, that that was enough. But you don't just say that, and then you're good. You actually have to believe it. Scripture tells us that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is risen again, then you will be saved. And if you really believe these things, they change everything about you. So if we truly believe that Jesus rose again, I believe there's a couple different ways that that will affect us. Number one, it becomes more about who you believe than what you believe. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of stories in Scripture that I wrestle with. And for those of you that are reading through the story of the Bible with us as a church, I'm not just talking about reading through Leviticus. <laughs> and I'm not just talking even about the stories in Genesis and Exodus that describe these terrible acts of violence that men of God carried out. I'm talking about the words written throughout Scripture, even words of Jesus himself, commands and calls to go and make disciples of every nation. Commands to leave the dead to bury their own dead and follow after the one who is worth leaving everything for. Commands that call us and convict us of sin and things that we usually find worth in and lead us to live a completely different way. These are the commands that I'm talking about. Commands that are challenging, countercultural, that may not even make sense to us. Commands that often throw us out of our comfort zone and that may even seem counter to our very nature. Commands that we wrestle with God over. But yet, when it comes to Scripture, I hear so many people and see so many people picking and choosing which of these commands and promises of God we choose to believe. And we justify what we want or what we desire with Scripture instead of conforming our lives into Scripture and what God's Word says. Instead, what we are doing is we are trying to use scripture and conform it into us, to conform it into our own stories. And instead of allowing God to speak life into us and to follow in his ways, we try to trap God and his words into a human-sized box that somehow we can understand. And doesn't it make sense that we do that? Jeremiah 17.9 says it like this, 
that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I mean, I get it. It's hard. It's countercultural to believe that now our lives are supposed to be so fixated on Christ that it's supposed to be, as Romans 12 reminds us, that every aspect of our beings is to be presented as a living sacrifice before God. Everything in our everyday, ordinary lives, our eating, our sleeping, our going to work, all of those things are supposed to be presented before the Lord. That's difficult, and it's countercultural for it not to be about us. And to be honest, I don't understand why God says a lot of the things that he does. And there are new things that I'm convicted of daily, but the truth is that if he is the Son of God, and he really did rise from the dead, which is what we're here gathering today because of, it doesn't particularly matter how we feel about those commands. Because his word is still true. And if he is God, which is what we're claiming, because he says it, that's what we must go by. Because it's in accordance with who he is. John 14, 6 says it like this, that Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he is our source of truth, and we have to conform our lives to that, even when we don't understand it. Someone really wise said to me once that I don't understand everything about God or what he does or why he says the things that he does, but I know that whatever he does and whatever he says is in accordance with his character, and who he is is perfect and good. So with that mindset, when we look at scripture, we look at it like it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The second way that I think it affects us recognizing that Jesus rose from the dead is that it causes us from, to move from thinking about what he has saved us from to living into what he is saving us for. You know, I got ordained here not that long ago, back in August, and my mom told me that she always knew I was supposed to be a minister. My parents like to recount this story of when I was about five years old and I was riding in the car with my little brother Casey, who was two and a half at the time. And on the way back home, my little brother, being two and a half, looks up at my mom and he says, Mommy, I got saved today. And my brother, being only two and a half, my mom looks up at him and just kind of chuckles and says, oh, that's really sweet, honey. What made you do that? And Casey, just with a grin on his face, looks up and said, well, Trey told me that if I didn't, I would go to hell and burn in a pit of fire. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many of you have spent time with two-year-olds, but there's a reason they call them the terrible twos. And I was really concerned for my brother's salvation, but if he died, I wasn't quite sure where he was going to go. <laughs> and to be honest, I was really afraid of that for me. Two, I spent most of my life from about the time I was eight until 13 praying for Jesus to save me every single night, often multiple times a night, because I was worried that if I died while I was asleep, I wouldn't go to heaven and that I would spend eternity in hell. And I think a lot of us who have grown up in church share this same type of view of salvation, that salvation's primary purpose is to save us from hell. We have this weird death-centered theology that is concentrated on what he has saved us from, our death, 
Salvation in this mindset serves more as a get-out-of-hell-free card than anything else. And don't get me wrong, it's rooted in wonderful scriptures like Romans 3.23 and 6.23 that remind us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And in scriptures like Ephesians 2 that tell us that apart from Christ, we were dead in our sins with no hope of doing anything to change it. But in practicality, a death-centered theology makes commands in scripture seem like obligations in order for God to be pleased with you. And it manifests itself in very subtle forms. I was having a conversation this past week with a very dear friend of mine. And in our conversation, he said that sometimes people need a message of grace, and at other times they need a message of obedience. And on the surface, I get what he's saying here. But I think that we've done a huge disservice to grace by separating the two. Because when we separate the two, we make grace look like its only purpose is God saving us from our sins. That God is saying that we're forgiven despite our sins, that we're no longer dead in our sins. And don't get me wrong, that's essential, that's part of grace. But it's missing something. Because the point of recognizing how we fall short is not to stop and fixate on how we fall short. The point of stopping and seeing how we fall short is to stop and fixate on how much better God is still. Colossians 3.3 says it like this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, family, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, what he sees is himself. That your very life is hidden in Jesus. Scripture also goes on to tell us that, it's Christ, that we are in Christ as Christ is in the Father. In other words, when God the Father looks at you, he sees himself, and then he sees you literally encapsulated by Jesus. And then when he looks at you, the most inner parts of you, the parts that speak for you, the parts that determine your identity, the parts that guide you and convict you, he sees his Holy Spirit inside of you, crying out to you to remind you that you are a child of God. So when God looks at you, that's who he sees. And this is not a fearful thing. This is a joyous thing worth celebrating, as we see in Luke 15, verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. It's like the story of the prodigal son. The point of the story is not merely for us to see how bad the prodigal son messed up and how badly the prodigal son took the gifts that his father had given him and wasted them away. The point of the story is for us to see the heart of God manifested. To see that with all of those things, God is there waiting with open arms, running after him to embrace him, to throw a huge celebration because he is glad that his son is home. So why is it that I'm saying you can't separate the message of grace from obedience? Isn't the whole story of the prodigal son, isn't it going to show us that despite how far you may have run, God is there ready to embrace you and welcome you home. Yes, it is. But the answer is simple. We see it in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. It says it like this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So why can't you separate the message of grace from the message of obedience? The answer is simple. If you're dead, you can't walk. But if you're alive, you do. 
You see, grace and obedience are inexplicably intertwined, and the natural response of receiving this gift of grace is to obey, because the natural response of being made alive is to walk. If grace stops at simply saving us from our sin, which it does, we miss the point. God didn't just save us from our sin. He has given us his righteousness. And in fact, he has called us his righteousness if we are in him. He has taken us who once had no hope and has given us hope. He took us who once had no future and has offered us a future of eternal glory. Where now, if we are in Christ, we are heirs according to a promise. And not only heirs according to a promise, but co-heirs with Christ himself. He has taken us who were once dead and has made us alive in Christ so that when people see us now walking in a way that doesn't make sense to them because they are still walking around in their deadness, they will see that there is something different about us. They will see his life in us because we are hidden in him. So that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That is why we are saved. And the third way that recognizing that Jesus is alive changes us is that it causes our faith to become the journey of learning to live into the life that we've been given. The truth is we live in a fallen and broken world. Our very bodies are decaying and we're at war. And we won't always feel like we're alive, and we most definitely won't always live like it. And even though Christ put to death sin, we're still going to sin. I'm sorry to break it to you if some of you haven't figured that out yet. But we still have remnants of our old nature, of our death, that we have to learn to put aside. Colossians 3 says it like this later on after talking about how we, our life is hidden with Christ it describes this process it says put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry and then it tells us later on to put on then is God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So in the process of moving from what we're saved from to living into what he is saving us for, this brokenness that we experience becomes an opportunity to praise God because it's a reminder of how much we need him and how desperate we are for him because in our frailty and weakness, his power is made perfect. So the call is to thank him and to ask him to use our weakness for his purpose. The prayer is for God to do what it says in Psalm 51.8. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Because the reality is, as we walk with God, he will convict us of things. Things that we used to find worth and identity in. Things that we used to even use to be able to stand. Things like our job or family or relationships, pride, gluttony, you name it. It could be a number of different things. But God will convict us of those things as we walk with him. And what happens in that is it often feels like the very bones that hold us together are starting to give way. 
And it's easy for us as Christians to sit and to wallow because our bones are giving way. But what if instead our response was to thank the one who even though our legs are giving way underneath us, to praise the one who is sustaining us enough to walk, who is giving us grace enough to take every single step that we take. You see, the point of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin is not for us to sit and wallow in our brokenness and our sin and shame anymore. The point of that is for us to be able to most fully live into the wonderful life that Christ has offered us. Did you know that the word for Holy Spirit in Greek and Hebrew is pneuma or ruach? It's the same word for breath or wind. And it's almost as if with that, God is trying to remind us that as much as we need to breathe, we need him. And even when we forget that we're even doing it, he's sustaining us all along. And with every breath that we take, he's giving us life. And as we breathe out, we're laying aside those things that we once used to find life in that don't do it for us anymore. And as we breathe in, we're breathing in compassionate hearts, in kindness, in love, in forgiveness, in joy, in hope. And as we breathe out, we're laying aside all sin of sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. We're laying aside those things that we once used to find our worth and our identity in. The purpose of us being convicted and for calling out sin for what it is is not for us to sit and wallow in shame. The point is to live most fully into the wonderful life that Christ has offered us. And the process of faith is learning to live into the reality that we are now alive. Because when God looks at us, even if we don't feel like it, what he sees is himself. And so our process is learning to believe that and walk as if those things are true because he has already said they're true. And if he really did rise from the dead, we don't really have an option on whether or not it's true. Our option is whether or not we live like it is. And lastly, the way that this affects us is that recognizing these things about God, that he is alive, and he has made us alive with him in Christ, the natural response of this is to share. When the angel appeared to the women, their first response was to go out with fear and great joy. To go to Galilee to tell the disciples that he is not there anymore because Jesus is risen. And at the end of the chapter, in some of the most wonderful commands that I think we often abandon in the church, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, right after Jesus appears to his disciples, he gives them this challenge. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the natural response to seeing a resurrected Jesus. And this is the natural response to seeing that the resurrected Jesus is also resurrecting us and making us look more like him. The natural response of all of that is to obey because it's the most consistent way to live in accordance with who God calls us 
And the natural response of that is to go and tell everyone because it is a joyous thing worth celebrating because we who were once dead are now made alive in Christ Jesus and we have an eternal future of hope and glory that is ahead of us and an abundant life that starts here today. So the invitation this morning is a simple one and it's for everyone. If you've never received this life that God has offered us, this is a free gift that is for you. And there is nothing that you have to do to earn it. But I will assure you, receiving it changes everything about you. And for those of us that are sitting in this room who have heard this message so many times, the invitation is this. That you will believe and walk forward confidently in the life that Christ has offered you. And if you are not a part of a church family, I want to invite you as well. Woodmont's not perfect. We're a group of people that are being shaped to look more like Christ, but we're doing it together. And as we stumble forward with our broken legs that are giving way, we're stumbling forward together and we're walking towards him who gives us life. And he is sustaining us and holding us together. So if you need a church family, we would love to be that for you. At this time, I'm going to invite Hunter to come back up and lead us in worship. Um, we'll pray. God, we just uh, thank you so much that you offer us this wonderful life in you through your Holy Spirit, that your very spirit within us is crying out, Abba, Father, and bearing testament to our souls that we are children of God. Uh, be with us this morning. We thank you for speaking. Help us just to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be up front if you need anyone to talk to or pray with.